Guten Tag, I'm Kurt Wagner, also known as the Munich Circus, the Incredible Nightcrawler. Today I'm Penny Tarable as a continuation of the miniseries Stinking Muties, and to prove that they will talk about whatever they can to fill up time to the end of the year, Nathaniel and Jeremy will talk about the two blockbuster films, X-Men and X-Men 2, X-Men United. But let's not be naive, the events about the films to come in the series might not be so kind. Happy listening! Hello, my name is Jeremy, and welcome to Penny Tolerable, where two brothers talk about movies, TV, comics, and whatever else. We've spent a lifetime together, so you can spend about an hour with us. And uh, who is with me right now? I'm uh, your brother, Nathaniel, as mentioned, I remember from before. <laughs> oh, yeah! Yeah. And uh, we're going with an hour? So what? We're going with a, you could spend about an hour with us. That sounds a little charitable. Hour and change, I don't know. Yeah. It's usually over an hour. Yeah. Has it ever, has it ever been under an hour when I've been here? I believe it has. Okay. Occasionally. Maybe I, once or twice. Shut me up, all the hell. Um, I am the permanent guest host in residence emeritus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that kind of college talk is actually going to, going to, play into what we're discussing today, but I won't spoil the surprise, except we said last time, and also it's in the title of this week's episode. <laughs> yeah. But uh, why don't you get us started? Well, uh, now we are going to do the next chapter of our mini-series, Stinkin' Muties, an elegy. <laughs> uh, where we talk about the X-Men movies. All of them, as a matter of fact. Yep. The plan, as I understand it, unless I've been misinformed, was uh, we are going to do uh, two movies per episode. Mm -hmm. And so we'll not. We already did New Mutants as the prologue slash epilogue. It's, this is like the Planet of the Apes. It cycles back. Oh, yeah, eventually. Um, but yeah, we'll be doing uh, six episodes. More or less in a row. We might take a break around Halloween if we get sick of it. Yeah. And uh, we will be doing two X-Men movies, largely in chronological order, although that's going to wobble a little bit when we get to like some spinoffs. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, anyways, today, uh, unless I miss my guess, we're going to be talking about uh, X-Men mm -hmm. from the year 2000 and the... Stupidly titled X2 X-Men United from 2003. Before we get to that, though, uh, last time we poured one out for the great uh, Chadwick Boseman. Yes. And now we have somebody uh, who is neither black, nor a man, nor uh, gone too young, but we're still going to miss her. Who am I talking about, Jeremy? We are talking about Dame Diana Rigg. Uh, you might know her from Game of Thrones, and you might know her from... Uh, the Avengers, the the British show, The Avengers. The Good Avengers. Yes, The Good Avengers. I'll clarify that quickly. And uh, I am ashamed that I don't remember which Bond movie she's in. On Her Majesty's Secret Service, and outside of uh, Ava Green, because Casino Royale is just one of the best movies ever, let alone the best Bond movies. Yeah. Outside of Ava Green, uh, she plays the uh, the best Bond girl ever. And the only one that Bond ever truly uh, settled down with. If you haven't seen On Your Majesty's Secret Service, it's uh, before a Bond film, it would be considered rather touching. 
and uh, she's just incredibly, incredibly charming in it. Honestly, it's a movie that has an okay Bond, an okay Blofeld, and a really great uh, Countess Tracy. <laughs> so she's that. She plays Elena Tyrell, maybe the best character on Game of Thrones. <laughs> yes. If you want some fun, just look up the scene where she and Tywin Lannister kind of... Uh, verbally joust for a while and uh yeah she was famously in the avengers and that makes her she deserves credit for everything but yes she's at least a little bit x-men adjacent why is that yes and that is because in one episode uh her character emma peel must infiltrate um i i I don't know if it's the actual Hellfire Club, because the Hellfire Club does exist. And there are actually multiple Hellfire Clubs. Yeah. So it's not even, like, the actual, it's an actual Hellfire Club. And she has to infiltrate it, and uh, in doing so, she wears a... uh, Basically, like bondage gear, like uh, mm-hmm. black, uh, you know, spiked necklace, uh, thigh high boots, uh, the the whole the whole spiel, and uh, the costume and appearance is uh, the inspiration for Jean Grey's Black Queen uh, yeah. persona in the. Dark Phoenix saga. Yeah, when actually what kicks off the Dark Phoenix yes. saga when uh, in order to move from a probationary to a full member of the Hellfire Club, uh, wonderful underrated X-Men villain Mastermind uh, corrupts her and she turns evil, which means she like dresses sexy and her hair is done up in a headmistress book. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, she kills a billion people, which I guess is Mastermind's fault. Yeah, I think <laughs> it is. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I really, really dig that. Uh, the old Claremont, uh, uh, Cockrum, John Byrne era of X-Men is the one where everything anyone likes about the X-Men comes from that era. Mm-hmm. Except like Gambit, I guess. Yeah. Uh, it stems from that era, and I love how it's not half-assed, but just where you could draw your inspiration from anything. Oh, yeah. So, like, yeah. 40 years later, we're still doing these characters based on the fact that Claremont and John Byrne had watched the sexy episode of The Avengers. And mm-hmm. like, well, I want to do that. <laughs> I want to go to there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, essentially, most, if not all, cartoonists and comic artists are horny. Just yeah. horny just thieves. Really horny. Yeah. Claremont writing bondage scenes into the X Men uh, for legitimate artistic reasons. <laughs> in this case. It's for the children. Yeah. I. Should, by the way, I'm not into kink shaming. Uh, I actually find the fact that Claremont seems to have a little bit of a BDSM thing running through his yeah. works. I honestly find that somewhat uh, charming. I think it adds to the yeah. personality of them. It is super funny, though, when you read his notes where it's like, maybe Xavier could start like dressing in a dog collar. It's the Vito, Vito. <laughs> but, but could Cyclops call Jean Mistress? <laughs> I'd like to introduce the newest X-Men, the Human Ashtray. <laughs> and so on. Yeah. <sighs> Anyways, uh, she's awesome and she will yeah. be missed. Yeah. She will be missed. Um, I can't think of a more touching tribute than what I just said. 
Oh well. Anyways, um, we, yes, we will be talking about, first, about, uh, oh no, the Reavers are outside. Oh no, that sounds like Bonebreaker's stupid motorcycle. <laughs> See, by the way, I don't mean his body, I mean his tank body is on a motorcycle. Yeah. Bonebreaker had a lot to prove. <laughs> Uh, we'll get to the Reavers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, you're getting a steak. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, we're, we'll be talking about the first two X-Men movies. Yeah. And uh, this is pretty interesting because... I already disagree with you. <laughs> Let me finish. Okay, okay. Um, these were made before comic book movies. They were a thing, but they were not a proven box office draw. You know, this was even before Spider-Man. Like, yeah. you you had Batman and, like, people were willing to put their money on Batman, but uh, Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin. And I dig Batman and Robin. I do. Uh, we both do, I think. Yeah, I uh, appreciate it. I think it's uh, intensely stupid. Yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, and it was actually successful, but uh, the backlash kind of kind of killed. And this is the weird thing they say: uh, "Oh, well, Batman and Robin really like killed uh, comic book movies." Mm -hmm. Yeah, for three years. Yeah, from 1997, then X Men and even Unbreakable come out in 2000. Mm -hmm. That's when people say like, "Oh, well, westerns like went out of fashion in the 60s and it didn't come back until like uh, Eastwood movies in the 80s." Like we're talking about three years. That's like saying, "Oh, uh, Spectre really killed James Bond movies." It's yeah. been five years since they made one of those. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, the. Uh people were kind of people were kind of scared to make a another superhero movie again and Marvel had not had really any success you know they oh. they were still smarting from Howard the Duck yeah and this is a thing that it could have its own podcast so I won't go into it too far but they had uh, sold off most of the rights uh, piecemeal mm -hmm. which is why it's been such a fiasco kind of gradually getting them back like one by one, guys, we can do a Ghost Rider movie again. Should we ever care to? Yeah. So in this case, um, who wants Man Thing? Yeah, and the result is you know Batman was popular because people like Batman. Superman was popular because people like Superman. And I actually, we'll do another episode about it maybe. But I, I love the '90s. Mm -hmm. The '90s feels like it went backwards because. It seems like they should have made a bunch of movies out of stuff people like, like X-Men and Spidey. Yeah, yeah. And then people would be like, okay, people like comics. Like, we're desperate for comics. What do we got? Tank Girl? The Mask? Barbed Wire? Sounds good to me. Judge Dredd? Okay. The Crow? Like, you know, terrific series, but in terms of relative popularity, like, sub-D-list relative yeah. to, like... Superman and Spider-Man. And instead it was like, no, we got all those out of our system in the 90s and then suddenly we decided that we want movies with Captain America. <laughs> I think the reason for that, and I've joked about this to you for many years, is that if you're Marvel or DC, you're going to be really apprehensive to uh, give your character 
to lend your character out to a filmmaker in uh, fear that he they will fuck it up. And but instead, like if you're no offense to like James Obar, yeah, I love James Obar, but you know he he was probably super eager to have a movie made yeah. out of his character and like Bruce Lee's son is going to play the crow yeah. holy shit that's a, that sounds awesome yeah and it's worth thinking about what we considered a comic movie at the time so like the two comic book movies that were in in production in the year 2000 were X-Men and Monkey Bone <laughs> Yeah. based on the graphic novel Dark Town. So that, that really situates this, and that, that defines especially the first X-Men movie. The second one's already kind of moving on, but the first X-Men movie is trying to be a comic movie without being a comic movie, yeah. if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Whereas people say, oh, this is what kicked things off, and that's not untrue. It was enormously successful. I think it was the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. Where it's not just, yes, it was based on a comic. Those feel like a comic. Yes. Like, Sam Raimi is a comic booky director. All of his movies were basically comic book movies without having been based on a comic yeah, book. like Dark Man. Uh, and as a result, uh, I feel like those kick off kind of the mood and the aesthetic that would last. Whereas the first X-Men was sort of trying to have its cake and eat it too, where we're like we will adopt the most successful comic book on the planet. And at the same time, we're going to go like, huh, at least we're not dressed in spandex. <laughs> Mutants? <laughs> Whatever. Now I've heard everything. And, which is funny, because then it spends the next 20 years trying to become more comic booky. Yeah. So that becomes a whole thing. But this is what we'll get into with our discussion, I think. What did, what did, uh, what do you have to say about X-Men 2000? X-Men, it's, I find it kind of fascinating because, first off, there's something that I've always loved. I've always thought this is one of the most baller moves in any, certainly any comic book movie, in, but in many types of movies where you go in, you, you know, you get your soda and popcorn or whatever the hell you're going to eat when you watch it. And you, you sit down for a comic book movie. Let's say you don't know the X-Men. Like, you're not an X-Men fan. Uh, you sit down and you think, oh, cool, this is going to be, you know, a fucking zip, pow, bang, or whatever. Nightcrawler oh, and Colossus. Nightcrawler and Colossus. It's going to be cool. You sit down. The movie opens. 1940. Auschwitz. You're like, holy shit, I thought this was going to be a comic book movie. Which is something Mike Nelson uh, made fun of on Rift Tracks, right? Yeah. He opened X-Men, he's like, oh, I, I, I thought we were going to watch uh, some superheroes going on an escapade, not beginning with the greatest tragedy in human history. Yeah, it is, it just throws you right in. Like, people who know the X-Men, they're like... Okay, they're they're gonna get to Magneto's origin at some point, but just starting the movie off with it is so jarring, and I I I, I doff the proverbial for like you know, Brian Singer going with such a uh, ballsy move. Uh, fuck Brian Singer for you know. I doff but, the slightly too tight magenta bike helmet. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I kind of agree with you there, and uh, we we sometimes talk about 
uh, you and me, not on the show, but I guess this is the time for it. We talk about when does this move into uh, the realm of bad taste? So, for instance, when they were promoting uh, Days of Future Past, which we'll get to, and I think is maybe one of the better ones. Yeah. Um, but they promoted that with uh, the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, Magneto curved the bullet. Yeah, like like truth.org, sort of like, like, but do we know about the curved bullet theory? Find out more on X-Men, Days of Future Past, knowthetruth.org. And they were doing like a viral marketing thing, which... Uh, they dropped it on like the anniversary of the assassination. Mm-hmm. Like they went out of their way to time it. You're like, yeah, look, I'm, I'm not even saying like leave poor JFK and the Kennedys alone. Uh, I don't even mean it coming from that perspective. I'm like, was that poor taste? Uh, and at the same time, I, I don't actually mind when this stuff is grist for the mill. Like when I read that. Swamp Thing's enemy, Anton Arcane, was a, quote, a mentor to Adolf Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no, that's fine. Like, all, all this stuff started from, like, pulp magazines where they beat up Nazis. So you can't just go, oh, you're not allowed to have Nazi stuff in here. You're not allowed to mention, you know, the Khmer Rouge or something in a Claremont X-Men book. It's like, it's like enjoying... An Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS movie. Yeah, or Danger 5. Yeah. Um, in this case, here's the thing, though. Uh, they go to the well too often. Yes. And so, it, when I think of... God, when I think of Auschwitz and the X-Men movies, I think of that Kids in the Hall sketch about uh, you chose a child molester's job. Yeah. Where uh, Scott Thompson plays the, uh, whatever he is, the mayor or whatever. And he's, he's just like, well, I guess I have to pick uh, the, the best jam to give the blue ribbon to. And so I have to decide which, uh, you know, being an elected official, I hate to do. <laughs> and everyone laughs. He's like, so, anyways, uh, time to render my decision. Uh, uh, unfortunately, it goes against my nature. And people laugh a little less. <laughs> so. My decision, which is hard for you to make, because being an elected official, I'm so damn indecisive, and it cuts the crowd into just, like, stone silence. <laughs> like, they've had enough. Or just complete robichets. Yeah, total robichet. That's me with them doing the concentration camp. So, first X-Men movie, I'm with you. I'm like, oh, like, but baller move. Like, certainly not what you would expect at the beginning of the uncanny X-Men movie. When they come back to it in first class, I'm like, I'm, this, I have a little bit of issue with this, which we'll talk about when we get to first class, like, its approach to tragedy and justified vengeance and things is, like, kind of gross to me. So I'm like, I'm not sure we need to see this again, but I guess the whole point is that it's a a reboot. Mm -hmm. It is an origin movie, so I guess that justifies it. And then by the time Apocalypse and Psylocke and Magneto swing by Auschwitz for a minute, I'm like, okay, stop don't no <laughs> rolled up newspaper rolled up copy of Giant Size X but number one no bad screenwriting <laughs> bad Simon Kinberg you know what you did but yeah you know it's uh it is very much oh no the Reavers again why did we choose to record this in the Australian Outback I don't know <laughs> to be continued <laughs> But yeah, we're we're they make quite a few changes. Uh, Rogue, Rogue is not like the. Sorry for the pun, jubilant. Uh, 
X-Man that we know, like where she's she's like the tank of the team and she's you know, she has the tragic Achilles heel if she can't touch anyone, but she still loves life. Now Rogue, she's Rogue is a pretty dope character, but yeah. like she's she has like all the Captain Marvel, Miss Marvel powers, and she talks like a, a Southern Belle, and she has like she's a living metaphor. Rogue is uh, pretty badass. Yeah. yeah. What's the pun with her being jubilant though? Jubilee. Yeah, but that that doesn't work if it's rogue, though. Uh, okay. That, no, no, come on. It's like, no, I'm, I'm going to drag you for this. Come on, <laughs> come on. Man. On my own goddamn podcast. You know? It's like if you watched The Lion King and went, well, that was a doggone good time. <laughs> Part of the pun. <laughs> okay, go on. <laughs> I promise I won't interrupt you again. But yes, in this, in this, we, we it says uh, in the not too distant future, which which for for me is just catnip. Um, Does it say that at the beginning of the movie? Yes, it, that it takes place in the not too distant future. That's cheesy. Okay. Uh, It'd be great if they did that before the Auschwitz opening. Because then you're like, whoa, what? Yeah. Whoa, now I'm worried. <laughs> then it turns into V for Vendetta. What the? <laughs> but yeah, we uh, we get to see her origin, which is essentially her kissing Cody, her uh, boyfriend, and realizing that she has this power, and like she, she puts him in a coma for a few weeks. Yeah, and then their mutual friend Guy, upon realizing that Cody gets the girl, beats up Cody, and then runs away. Mm -hmm. And then he eats a uh, turkey leg that's hidden in a, a trash can and goes, yum. Hey, when we say, we're talking about Final Fight, of course, when we say that there's like a hunk of meat hidden in a trash can, is hidden the word... Did somebody just throw it out and that's where it was? <laughs> that's like saying George Costanza found a hidden eclair in a trash compactor. But yeah, we, uh, she, and she's played by Anna Paquin, who... The ugly one. Yeah. So, <laughs> no, that's, I, I really need to like that back. That was an old joke from Wizard where Anna Paquin goes like, oh no, I'm the ugly one because she's in a movie with Halle Berry and those, like in Rebecca Remain. I want to clarify, that was just a reference. I think Anna Paquin is stunningly good. <laughs> yeah. She's played by Anna Paquin, who's a great act actress. And, uh. She's a lot of fun. Yeah, she's a lot of fun. Uh, her character is much more gloom and doom in this because of her uh, because of her gift curse type yeah. thing, and uh, so she she leaves her she leaves her home. Mom, pa. Yeah, she leaves her mom and pa, and eventually meets up with Wolverine in a bar. And Wolverine is played by a wonderful Australian song and dance man Hugh Jackman who is a huge Jackman yeah she's just a huge Jackman I like how you accurately call him a song and dance man yeah he's yeah. here to sell the Xavier Institute on new monorails and stuff <laughs> we get a cameo from the voice actor from Nelvana 90's uh, X-Men cartoon who did Beast he plays the uh, truck driver yeah who, by the way, uh, we're talking about the movies and not that cartoon, but just a shout out to him. He has one of the better voices on yeah. the show. 
like the erudite gor erudite gorilla. Yeah, mm -hmm. so uh, it was always a pleasure whenever Beast popped up, which he didn't because he was in jail for the first season for some reason. <laughs> yeah. <what? laughs> Anyways. <laughs> it, yeah, but she meets up with Wolverine and they start trucking along. They keep on trucking. Follow our crown's advice. <laughs> and uh, they eventually meet Sabretooth, who is... A very saber-toothy saber-tooth, like Tyler Maine. Uh, I'm not saying Tyler Maine is dumb, but he plays the character dumb. While Sabretooth is supposed to be just cunning as well as this giant beast. And uh, Cyclops and Storm show up and they... Cyclops just shoots at him and he jumps the fuck away. And they... Cyclops and Storm save. And it doesn't look fake at all. Yeah, it you know, looks perfect. And, uh... Uh... They... Cyclops and Storm end up taking the two of them to the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters. Where we are introduced to literally a few of the X-Men. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, we we have Famke Jansen as, uh, she looks pretty good as Jean. Uh, I like Famke Jansen, too. Yeah. She should be in more stuff. James Marsden, who I really like. Not in this, though. Yeah, not in this. Because James Marsden needs to be one of those guys, he is good when he is playing off, like, Tina Fey and Will Ferrell. When he's essentially like a goofball who is handsomer than he should be. Mm -hmm. uh, he doesn't get to do that as Cyclops. And in fact, he doesn't get to do anything as Cyclops. Yeah. Like, like of all the characters in the original, like the first X-Men trilogy, let's call it, Cyclops is the Sir Not appearing in these movies. Yeah. Out of all the main characters. He's base. Not to get too ahead of ourselves, he's basically dead in the third one. Yeah. Um, and we also have Halle Berry as Storm. This is not Storm. Storm in the comics is commanding and strong and powerful. Halle Berry plays her as very much a shrinking violet. Yeah. And her acts, her, she's attempting a Kenyan accent, which is comes in and out. Uh, Storm's supposed to be a Maasai, right? Like, like when they got more specific than just saying she's from the country of Africa. Yeah. I believe that they established that as her backstory. And uh, yeah, th there was a point for about 20 years where Storm was arguably the, the X-Men. Like Wolverine was the most popular, Kitty Pride was the viewpoint character. Mm -hmm. Storm was, uh, she beat Cyclops for leadership of the team. She's uh, handily the most powerful. Like, more powerful yeah. than all of them combined. Uh, and she's a very strong presence in the books, and I feel like that, I'm with you, that does not come through here. Go ahead. Um, but yeah, uh, we are, we are, earlier in the movie we are introduced to Senator Kelly, who is played by Bruce Davison, who's wonderful character actor. He's God, for somebody who has such a small role here and in the next one, he is so much fun to see and stuff. Mm -hmm. He is kidnapped by 
uh, the Brotherhood of Mutants, which consists of uh, uh, Tyler Mayne as Sabretooth, a basically completely nude Rebecca Remain as Mystique, um, Ray Park, the awesome, awesome Ray Park as Toad. I've, oh. I've met him. He's a great guy. You, you also met uh, Tyler Maine, and he was he was uh, one of those guys who was a jerk to you at a convention, right? Uh, I I can't ever remember what he said to me. It was several people at that convention were a little prickly, but uh, we'll be generous and say it was the convention. Yeah. It was more the convention than anything else. Maybe they all had to like travel on a bus, like the yo-yo experts from The Simpsons. Yeah, or a van, even better. No I, Blackbird VTOL vehicle. <laughs> but yeah, not to like shit talk, but it was Tyler Maine, uh, Tony Todd, and Eric Roberts, and I think not Eric Roberts. Yeah, I think. Oh, I think they were just in a bad mood like it just because the convention i don't yeah. i don't know if it was me I, I doubt it was me it was a roberts convention and eric was tired of being overshadowed <laughs> so but yeah you know um uh, talking mutants <laughs> uh so okay can, can we talk about the brotherhood for a minute yeah okay the bad guys in the first movie are of course, one version of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, which uh, they're going to be. That's that's the yeah. go-to bad guy group. It is funny that they gave them this name, which they then... Pretty much any comic after 1966, they have to justify why they're still called the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. So in the movie, they skip that and just call it the Brotherhood. Um, I don't know quite how to feel about the these guys, because... The villains are probably the coolest thing about the movie. Yeah, they make Toad such a badass. Uh, up, up to a point. Uh, but yeah, Magneto, Toad, Mystique, and Sabretooth, probably in that order. Uh, they are more fun than the good guys. and They're kind of cool. And at the same time, because they... It, it's not a gigantic movie. It's under two hours. Uh, they don't get to spend a lot of time with them, and the result is that the four of them become what four bad guys always become, which is the the characters from Gauntlet. You have a brute, a little elf guy, a girl, and a wizard. Yeah, like at the end of the day, that's what the brotherhood elf is. needs food yeah. badly. That's what the brotherhood is here. That's what the children of Thanos, like the Black Guard or whatever they're called, that's what they are in Infinity War. And they fulfill those roles, but each of these characters, even Toad, has like so much backstory, which I know they're not going to do in like the very first movie. But it's a little bit of a bummer when you have Sabretooth, who in the books is just you know coked up werewolf. <laughs> I always that's what he is to me, the Conan yeah. character, coked up werewolf. Sabretooth, who is like a cunning, genuinely threatening and unpleasant character that. The X-Men are afraid of Sabretooth in a way that they are not afraid of Mojo or somebody. Yeah. He's one of those characters like Juggernaut who could come in and single-handedly like mess shit up for everybody. Mm -hmm. Here, he's a caveman. Yeah. 
Same thing, Toad is this like weird, conflicted, you know, the best versions of him are like Richard the Third. Yeah. Here he's a skinny dude who gets one or two good smart aleck lines. And then Mystique in particular, she comes back in the sequels, or the prequels, to better or worser effect. So I'm glad they expand on her, but Mystique's huge in the comics. Yeah. In fact, they, they even did a... Somebody with more time in their hands than I did, like, a chart where they broke down, like... It, throughout, like, the, the Claremont run, like, 70s, 80s, classic X-Men, you know? Who was the main adversary who appeared the most times in a bad guy position? And it's not Sinister or Magneto or Apocalypse. It's Mystique who keeps coming back and coming back and coming back. And here she's sexy lady who's good at kicking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they're more fun than the good guys, but none of them get to do much of anything. Like each one gets about one memorable line of dialogue and one fight scene, and then they're out the door. Yeah. So it's it's I guess it's a pity. It's like Scarecrow and Batman Begins. I really like that character, and I really like Killian Murphy. I like him so much, I wish they hadn't burned him off as a henchman in one movie. Yeah. Anyways, that's my take on it. So, uh, Magneto essentially creates... I don't know how he does this, because he, he was never really a tech genius. Uh, he creates a machine that sends out a shockwave that transforms you into a mutant, mm-hmm. but it can, only, it can only be powered by him, but he's not strong enough to power it, so he needs Rogue, he needs Rogue to absorb his powers so she can use, it's just, it's so complicated, but I guess it works for a good, you know, conflicting... MacGuffin character. Yeah, you know. Yeah, so he needs to use her, presumably killer, but... Yeah. He could focus his powers uh, through her, but he's he's an old man. He's he's Gandalf. He he doesn't have the energy to do all this. Mm-hmm. By the way, Magneto as uh, or Ian McKellen as Magneto is Chef's kiss. It he is so catty and he just vamps up the role so much you know, the the smile the the fact that when he's not wearing the helmet he's holding it under his arm so kingly and you know it's it's just great uh i agree with you in the second movie which we will get to because i feel like magneto walks away with the second film or he floats away with it even him, and like he's the he's the best part of the movie, I would say. Even Ian McKellen and even Magneto in this film, I'm like, this is this is fine. This is mm-hmm. perfectly serviceable, but I can't even remember anything he does in the first movie besides when he walks over like the gap and the metal like flies under his feet really quickly. Mm-hmm. So like it looks like a Mega Man level, and he has the clackety balls that don't need the cords because he's controlling them. Yeah, and there's and, and you're like oh, we have a future, Charles, not them. Um, he's the best thing about the movie, and, and even then, I'm like that's still only okay uh we'll get we'll get to that if we do like final reviews but this movie is uh 
to quit. I would say. Yeah. And the one thing that tickled me, you know how they have IMDb trivia where you, you read it and you go, no, that's that's not true. Yeah. Uh, one they say was uh, Ian McKellen, he had to hurry up and do the movie before he went off to do Lord of the Rings. And they said, uh, IMDb trivia says, he was reluctant to take the role because uh, he didn't take comic books seriously. However, he changed his mind and joined the film after he saw the costume. You know, really? Because his costume looks kind of stupid. Like, no worse than anybody else in this movie, but it's just a Nehru jacket with a helmet that doesn't fit him. And half a cape and gloves. Yeah. That's it. And so you see that, it's like, no, 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 it's going to take more than that to persuade me. Look, if you want me to be in your funny book picture, I have one request. I'd like to look like a fucking moron. <laughs> there, there, that's the one. I'll do it now. Uh, the, the plot in this, I must say, is... Existent? Uh, ex- ex- it's existent. It's very convoluted, but it's also very thin. Like, yeah, there's yeah. so there's so much going on, but it's so much of nothing. Like we have a subplot about Rogue falling in love with Iceman from Top Gun. Yeah, no, <laughs> falling in love with Iceman, the guy that plays him, uh, Sean Ashmore, I believe it is. Um, I like him in this, I really do. Um, but yeah, she eventually. I think there's really not that much yeah. going on. I, no. <laughs> I can't really expand on this. There, yeah, there's I, so much, but so little. It's I feel like that uh, inexcusable span of dead air we just gave you is the plot of the X-Men movie. If th- This feels exactly like the sort of movie they would write before they nailed down the formula. Mm-hmm. Where, and by comparison, these days the Marvel films are nothing but formula. Yeah, it's like okay, like we have like the origin, and then the bad guy we don't do enough with, and then these are going to be our four credit scenes, and then now that we've got a plot skeleton, we'll bring in Quipbot five thousand. Quipbot, you'll handle most of the dialogue. Gladly, is this going to become a whole thing now? Mm-hmm. Uh oh, don't go in there. And they fly now. Yeah. They fly now. Yeah, exactly. So Quipbot's doing God's work on the MCU films, but with this, uh, it, it's just the bare minimums. Like, we have about six good guys and about four bad guys. They fight at a monument, let's say the Statue of Liberty, because then there can be like an odd immigration metaphor, even though the movie's actually about civil rights. Uh, then we'll throw in some other stuff and there'll be like a big doomsday machine that the bad guy tries to set off. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, not that the movies, the next one is singularly guilty of this, but it's that kind of movie. Like, Mag- Magneto's going to turn everyone into a mutant. He's going to blow up the ocean. Yeah. And it, it's one of those things, like, like Spidey 2 to me is a better movie, but that has like, Dr. Octopus is building a miniature sun and he must be stopped. Anything where the bad guy is about to build the doomsday device and must be stopped, you know, like, this feels like a third to last draft. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like, pe- people make fun of, like, Joker and Bane for having these super complicated plots that probably wouldn't work in real life. You're like, at least it's a thing. At least the, like, freshman college, like, boat dilemma morality thing with the detonators. At least that's better than, like, Joker's building a bomb that'll give everyone smiles in Gotham. Yeah. Yeah, so... And then you read about, uh, by the way, there were a bunch of passes of the script. It's that kind of movie where, like, 17 mm-hmm. people yeah. did it, which is why it's fine, but it has no real personality. Yeah. Um, there were different passes at it, different inclusions. There was, they left out, you know, Nightcrawler and Beast because they would have been too hard to do on what was a relatively modest budget. The one that sounds interesting but terrible to me, uh, Michael Shabon wrote hmm. a yeah wrote a draft of the script yeah if you don't know him michael shabon one of my favorite living authors does terrific novels like the yiddish policeman's union and telegraph avenue and many many others the adventures of cavalier and klein yeah which he won the pulitzer for and a guy who legit knows comics and I don't mean that in like a Simpson-y way, like, we have to have a real fan write the comic movie. Like, no, there's some cases where it's better to not have a fan handle everything. Yeah. But somebody who could do this with a degree of reverence without being too precious about it. And also knows dialogue, so I'd love to read Shabon's script, but the one thing that's like kiss of death for me on it is... His plan was that the entire first movie would just set up the school and the X-Men, and there wouldn't be any bad guys until the sequel. Hmm. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, comic movies are already guilty of that, where the first $200 million movie is just proof of concept, and then the second one is the movie you wish they'd done, right? Yeah. Like, Batman Begins is fine, wait till the Dark Knight. X-Men is fine, wait till x They're already guilty of that. They don't need to be doing, like, no no conflict at all until the second film. I'm like, mm, I love you, but I'm, no. No, 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 puppy, puppy, no, 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 no. And essentially, at the end of the day, in this movie, uh, uh, Sabretooth is... Possibly killed. I don't know. He seems tougher than uh, than it would take a, an optic blast to kill him. Continuity-wise, he doesn't come back. No, though, does he, he doesn't actually. That's because that, that's wild. He comes back, but only in prequels. Yeah. So I guess Cyclops straight up murders Sabretooth. <laughs> uh, and Storm straight up murders Toad. In a uh, scene which, when the film came out, was considered the nadir of the film. Uh, Toad is hanging off a railing and Storm strikes him with lightning and she says, do you know what happens when lightning, do you know what happens to a toad when it is struck by lightning? The same thing that happens to everything else. And he gets zapped and he flies away and dies. And that line of dialogue was written by Mr. Joss Whedon. Really? Yeah. (laughs) That was one of two lines of dialogue, I believe, when he did his pass of the script. That was one of the two lines that they retained. And ever after, he trashed it, which... uh, Not to go off on a whole thing, Joss Whedon is really great at blaming his actors for why his movies don't turn out well. So when uh, when he did Buffy the Vampire Slayer the movie, and it didn't really work... 
he said, oh, well, like, Donald Sutherland was, like, hard to work with, and, like, he didn't give the performance I wanted. Go, yeah, it's yeah, Donald it, it Sutherland's fault. Yeah, it was Donald Sutherland's fault. It looked just like always. And then here, I'm not saying Halle Berry's... Like, I'm not a huge fan. <laughs> I've liked her in one or two things. I'm not saying it's like you got Angela Bassett or somebody to be in the movie. But it's fine. Like, she doesn't make the line worse than it is on paper. Mm-hmm. And he says, like, no, no, no. She was supposed to say it like this. And instead she says it like she's playing Desdemona or something. And then you watch the movie and she doesn't. Yeah. So it's like his complaint doesn't even make sense. You're like, is it possible that I know this is unthinkable for Joss Whedon dialogue? It sounded kind of clever, but doesn't actually work as a thing a human being would say out loud. Mm-hmm. Maybe I I don't know. Maybe I'm just fishing here. Uh, and then Mystique gets stabbed, but she survives. Yeah, Mystique gets stabbed in the tummy. Oh, we forgot about Senator Kelly. Oh, yeah. Magneto kidnaps Senator Kelly, puts him in the mutant maker machine that you can buy from Hasbro. Yeah. And then he gets turned into like a jellyfish. He uh, Senator Kelly gets turned into Mitch McConnell, and then he disintegrates into a puddle of water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and she replaces him. And she replaces him, which, yeah, it's basically it until the next one. Same ending as G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra. Yeah, I will... Oh, no, the president's a bad guy. <laughs> I will get into that in a second. Um, oh, okay. At the end, we have Magneto locked up in a plastic prison, uh, and he's playing chess, one of many, many, many chess games between Xavier and Magneto that will be played in this series. Uh, and there's actually a good line. I, I actually really dig this line. Magneto says, uh, you know, aren't you afraid that, uh, you know, they're going to pass the Mutant Registration Act? Aren't you afraid that one day they'll come after you and your students? And uh, Xavier says, I feel a great swell of pity for anyone who comes to my school looking for a fight. Like he doesn't that. say it like that. He doesn't say it like that, but it is, it's a good line. I reminds me with pity for anybody who comes to my school looking for a fight. Yeah, it's Which a good cool line. Bitch. <laughs> and then we go into X-Men 2. Before we move on, find just my OCD, my XOCD. Uh, final judgment on X-Men 1. What works, what doesn't. Um. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a completely meh movie. Yeah. It is one of the most two and a half star movies yeah. ever made, right? And at no point is it incompetent or badly done or offensively stupid or anything like that. There are set pieces that kind of work. And usually the smaller ones, like when Sabretooth is roughhousing with Wolverine and his RV is on fire and Rogue can't get her seatbelt unbuckled. Mm -hmm. There's more actual tension in that than a, you know, like, he's gonna blow up the Statue of Liberty. Um, Mm -hmm. But again, it, it is absolutely, it's we said it before, it's a proof of concept movie. And it has a pretty not bad cast. Not just, okay, Patrick Stewart is Xavier. It's like Michael Dorn is Bishop. Like yeah. that, that was just like willed into existence. Of mm-hmm. course that was going to happen. Uh, the cast ranges from excellent to serviceable, but even then, I feel like even Stewart and McKellen 
yeah. don't get that much to do. Yeah. So, in other words, uh, you're maybe right to just hasten along. I maybe shouldn't have stopped us. For a movie that kicked off the following 20 years of filmmaking, it's it's incredible how quaint it is. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit like if you're a James Bond fan, you always think of like, what's the, what's the proto-James Bond movie? Like, Goldfinger set the formula, and then Thunderball was even bigger. And then From Russia with Love is kind of the more Ian Fleming flavor. And the very first one, which I enjoy, but it's weird, the very first one's Doctor No. You're like, really? So the, the entire franchise and the entire spy genre was launched on having a cute Scottish guy bum around Jamaica for two hours. Yeah, it doesn't even have Q in it. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, then we get to uh, X2 where they actually start making X-Men movies. Yeah, and we are in... Uh, the first mutant that we see in uh, X2 is really the best mutant in the world. Nightcrawler. Yeah. Played by uh, Broadway legend Alan Cumming. A.K.A. successful Scottish version of me. <laughs> uh, I've yeah. been told that. <laughs> he, uh, he essentially, he's brainwashed and he lays siege on uh, the White House. Uh-huh. And uh, he, it's an awesome scene. He jumps around, flippy-flops, teleports, uses his tail. Uh, he gets into the Oval Office where he just just decimates a bunch of guards and then is about to I'm pretty sure he's not supposed to kill the president but you know if he does then that's fine but it's supposed to be a uh, kind of a setup because his dagger has a ribbon on it that says like mutant rights now or something to that effect mutant freedom I mutant think. freedom something like and that. yeah and then he like stabs him to the desk but he gets winged by one of the uh Secret Service guards, and he teleports away. Yeah. And all of this is, uh... It's a plan by, uh... Colonel Stryker, who is Reverend Stryker in the book that this is based on, God, God Loves, Loves, Man Kills. But they make him a army colonel in this. Hmm. And he essentially uses the, uh... powers, like the glandular powers of his son... Jason, who is a little bit mastermind, but also a little bit legion. It's kind of odd. Yeah, I guess that's one way. And then there is a TV series based on legion, so I assume it's not meant to be that character. Then again, there's like four Calibans at various Yeah. So I assume the name Jason is meant to be, again, Jason Wingard the villain mastermind from the books. Outside of the fact that he has mind control, there's no connection whatsoever. No, he does He does say, like, oh, and he, he tormented me and my wife, our little mastermind. Oh, does he say that? Yeah, he says well, that. Lame, though. And, uh, by the way, it's fine. It's, it's actually a decent enough premise that the most threatening character is a... Uh, essentially catatonic figure in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. That's actually sort of cool and creepy. I guess I just have a soft spot for Mastermind in the comics because he's this scumbag who looks like shit, but then he can make himself look like Death yeah. and Strike. Yeah. And again, somebody who 
this is one thing I like about the books. This is like, there's so many drawbacks to having like decades of continuity. This is one of the cool things. For his first run of appearances, Mastermind is nobody. He's just one of uh, Magneto's henchmen. So it's like, hey, we got like a fat guy and like an illusionist and a quick guy. Mm. No personality, no depth, nothing to him. But because he was he was there, he was like sitting around. Yeah. Claremont decided, oh, that's like the mind control thing actually makes him pretty powerful. Like he could be more of a threat than he's been written as so far. So they big him out to be, again, a member of the Hellfire Club, where incidentally, we joked about that earlier, but he basically causes the Dark Phoenix saga. Yeah. And then he, his mind is essentially destroyed by Phoenix, and he, I think, disappears until he dies of the legacy virus in the 90s. So it's this whole thing, but I'm like, I sort of love that. I, I like when the plot impetus doesn't have to be like, this was Apocalypse's, you know, hundred-year plan being put into fruition. Mm -hmm. I like when stuff can just happen, when, like, Toad could accidentally be the guy that caused the, the downfall of mankind. It's like in Jessica Jones, how Kilgrave the Purple Man yeah. is the bad guy. Like this is I remember when we were younger, we would like look through old like they put out those Marvel handbooks. And there was a bad guy called Purple Man, and even as kids, we were like, "Purple Man, huh?" Was it was it like ten minutes to lunch? Purple Man was your guy, and uh, but then they went like, "Oh, what if we made him just like the creepiest motherfucker ever?" And then mm -hmm. got a good actor to play him, and suddenly he's one of the only good things about the Marvel Netflix shows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, maybe that's... There's nothing wrong with it in the movie. I guess, to me, Mastermind could be a Kilgrave-level, like, insufferable... Not badass, but, but, like, creep villain. And instead, they're like, oh, we'll take the name and the power, and then he'll be in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. Good enough. Uh... Uh, Wolverine, who has been sent off to the Alkali Flats to try to find stuff about his, find out stuff about his past, finds out essentially nothing, and yeah. comes back to the Institute. All he manages to do in the Alkali Flats is blast along them in a monkey-powered rocket ship. <laughs> uh, no, it's Alkali Lake, not the Alkali Flats. What am I thinking of? Um, yeah, he goes, he looks at a wolf, he comes home. Yeah, he looks at a wolf and that's it. So, just so we're clear, X2 has the same basic plot as the fantastic Mr. Fox. <laughs> he looks at a wolf. And uh, he comes back, he, we find that uh, Bobby, Iceman, and a rogue have, uh, you know, they've started up a relationship. They don't know where to take it because... They can't become physical with each other, but... No touchy. Yeah. And, uh, and essentially, because of... Uh, because of, you know, what happened with Nightcrawler and the President, Stryker is... Uh, he's allowed to send his goons out to apprehend the kids at the Xavier Institute or whoever he can find at the Xavier Institute but when they fight back we get some cameos from characters like Siren and uh get, get to the big one we know what we're here for <laughs> Siren and Artie and Colossus <laughs> I like how you had to say Artie 
Yeah. <laughs> you could just get the Colossus. Here we go. Okay. For all you Artie Maddox fans out there, the letter writing campaign worked. Oh, he is in the movie. son of a bit. I forgot the best part about this movie. One of the best things about this movie is we get Pyro. He's not the Pyro from the Do comics, we? but... <laughs> He's, he's he's still a pyro, you know. He lights a kid's arm on fire when he steals his uh, cigarette lighter, so that's that's pyro enough for me. Yeah. You know. And I guess uh, this whole episode's just going to be me having a soft spot for dead villains from the comics. Mm-hmm. But once again, uh, pyro in the comics—it's it, a stock power. He just has like an elemental power. That's yeah. fine. He doesn't do a whole hell of a lot. There's not like a defining like pyrographic novel or anything. Yeah, but he is a fairly colorful supporting villain. He tends to work with Mystique. He's friends with Mystique, not just like henchmen or anything. Like yeah, the two of them know each other previously and like each other. Yeah. There's even a scene where like they're running from the Reavers, like we had to earlier, mm-hmm. and they're being gunned down and. She says, like, I'm sorry it came to this. And he says, like, oh, there's worse ways to go. And, like, he grabs her hand. And it's those little touches that, like, add flavor to the, you know, we're shooting each other with our eyes stories. Yeah. And his backstory, he's a journalist and novelist. Yeah. Who essentially turns to becoming not even a criminal, but, like, with Mystique, like, like uh, terrorist activist. Yeah. Because he gets bored. And uh, I... I get that you would not make a whole movie about that because it would be 40 minutes of the movie. But again, there's there's so much rich stuff to draw from and they boil it down to uh, he's a 20-year-old guy with uh, you know 90s hair that can make fire. Yeah. And that's sort of all there is. I don't mind what they do with Rogue in these because she's not just Rogue. She's Rogue and Jubilee and Kitty Pride. Yeah. Like the youthful female viewpoint character the underage character that Wolverine can hang out with a little bit too much. Uh, same as in the comics. She, so she's sort of a gestalt of all that. I think it's a pity that Iceman and Pyro basically do become... What if we did, like, a cold guy and, like, a hot guy? Yeah. And it doesn't... I, I'm not sure, like, there's only so much you can squeeze into a movie, but I'm like, eh. Oh, okay, he does fire, and that's it. That's all you need to know about mm-hmm. him. And, yeah, um, essentially, uh, Mystique is still Senator Kelly, which I like. More Bruce Davidson. She, ha- she has stayed as Senator Kelly, which is playing the long game. That is a smart move, you know. I There's a lot to not like about G.I. Joe Retaliation, but the cool thing is, Zartan stays the president. He never turns back into Zartan until he dies. Yeah, he just <laughs> stays as Jonathan Price. That is so odd. Like, he, he basically makes it so that the Joes are a criminal organization and Cobra are the Secret Service. So, yeah. he has so much control. He realizes he has so much control. So, he uses it. And I don't... It's something that they could have done really well in this movie, but they don't. Yeah, which is strange. We're we're not going to worry about, like, play-by-play plot synopsis here or anything, so much like uh, Ray Park, we'll jump around a little bit. (laughs) But uh, 
That's something. Uh, I get why Mystique has to change back because she helps Magneto break out of prison. And then she goes and does this uh, this mission with him, uh, where they briefly have a moment where they almost succeed in wiping out humanity. Yeah. But then when that falls apart, they just sort of walk away at the end, and you are left with that feeling of like, okay, why doesn't she go back to being Senator Kelly though? Yeah. Like, what is stopping her from just like, oh boy, sorry, I I caught the flu while I was skiing in Aspen, and uh, now I'm back, I'm ready for the floor vote. Uh, it would be great if, like, Mystique as Senator Kelly suddenly became, like, a total DSA socialist. <laughs> it's it's unspoken of in the movies, but she's absolutely pushing for, like, Green New Deal, Medicare for All. You're like, <laughs> hey, I don't know what happened to Senator Kelly. Maybe it was that primary challenge from, uh, you know, that Kennedy kid, but uh, just really pushed into the left. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> also, does Senator Kelly have a family? I don't know. Like, is Mystique getting some side action? Is she, like, playing catch with some little, you know, normie kid? Or, <laughs> or does she just... Or is it just... Uh, Senator Kelly was married to his work. So nobody questioned why he lived alone. Did, did she get his keys? Like, is she allowed to live in his house now? Possibly. Why wasn't this the movie? There should have been an animated short by Peter Chung that takes place between X-Men and X-To. <laughs> it's just like Mystique checking the mail with Senator Kelly with like her bathrobe open, like Tony Soprano. <laughs> I should note... And her neighbor beats her up like Rand Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I should note that in the first one... Uh, Senator Kelly is on a helicopter, so we do get Smelly Kelly in this alley. Yeah, that is true. Anyways, getting back to the second one, uh, the X-Men are essentially split apart. We get, uh, Wolverine, Rogue, Iceman, and Pyro going to, uh, they need to hide out. They bail from the attack on, uh, the mansion, and they need to go to... Uh, Iceman's house where his parents and brother are and then we get uh, then we get uh, Gene and Storm who have to go get Nightcrawler and it's a scene it's an interesting scene where no it's actually that was a flub in the script they have to go get Nightcrawlers Wolverine is going on a fishing trip <laughs> later it's a, it's a neat scene where uh we don't see him baffing around, but we hear him baffing around a cathedral. And it's it's Alan Cumming just yelling at them in German, which he does know since he played the MC in Cabaret. <laughs> and they eventually because get Because of that. You know, yeah. <laughs> I think maybe. <laughs> I just love it. It's, it seems more plausible that he knew German and was then hired for the role, but it was like, nope, he played the guy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they they talk to him and in this in the comics he's very he has a love of life you know he's, he's a swashbuckler but in this he's more pious he has more yeah. his, his convictions to Catholicism are stronger like he he's a devout Catholic in the books but not like he is in the movie in this he has tattoos that he says like 
our representative, the Archangel Gabriel, he says, like, oh, maybe he is testing me, and he points to a crucifix. And uh, there's just stuff like that. And he kind of he kind of hits on Storm, which I find I, I kind of liked that. Yeah, I kind of cut those neat. Kurt is such a dog, really. <laughs> He's just out there, you know, hot dogging around, uh, Tom catting about. Um, th- there was a joke I saw once. Uh, they were. They were like riffing on the X Men, and when they did Nightcrawler, they said like, "Ah, pleased to meet you. I am Kurt Wagner. I'm a priest, but I'm also a pirate. Yeah, <laughs> I also am also the leader of Excalibur." And it went through all of his various roles, and it's true. He is a collection of different elements. So he's like, uh, the, he's like the heart of the team. He, he's maybe the most like purely good-hearted character on the classic team. Yeah. Uh, he has like a swashbuckling Errol Flynn persona. He's hyper masculine, but in like a self aware way. So he's he's always like posing and flirting mm-hmm. and everything. But he's in on the joke with it. Yeah. And also he is a devout Catholic. And they, they were joking about like there's all this stuff going on with Nightcrawler and is is he a bit overloaded? And the truth is well no, like like because these are believable qualities that were accrued over, like, 16 years of storytelling. It's one of those things like, you know, Beast plays the keyboard. Yeah. It, like, these little factoids that only come up when you need them to. Iceman's an accountant. Shit like that. Uh, but when you, again, when you put him into the movie or a single episode of a cartoon or something, you have to strip it away. And I think what they always latch on to is, dude... What if the guy who looks like a demon was actually, like, totally Christian? And mm-hmm. I don't mind that aspect of it, and I get why they went with it. But even then, Nightcrawler's the best thing about the sequel, uh, along yeah. with Magneto. But, but even then, you're like, God, I, would it kill him to have a duel where he holds a rapier with his tail? Just once. I don't know against who. <laughs> Could he just wear, like, a big floppy hat at one point? <laughs> I'm not asking for the world here. <laughs> uh, Magneto is in his plastic prison, but he is able to escape because... <laughs> That's my favorite Prague album. <laughs> because... <laughs> because uh, Mystique uh, transforms into a sexy, normal-looking lady. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And uh, wait, wait, wait! Which sexy, normal-looking lady? Rebecca Remain. Which makes me curious: Does Rebecca Remain exist in the world of the X-Men movies? <laughs> like, does like the chubby guard who she seduces and she she like sticks him in the butt and what is very humorous scene? He's in a toilet and she pokes him in the butt. I really like that with a needle full of mercury, yeah. which seems like it would hurt more. Uh, but but yeah, when he sees her at the bar, he's like, "Oh god damn, that's that's Rebecca Remain Stamus." But not even Stamus anymore because of the recent divorce. This might be my only chance. Like, he spits in his palms, slicks his hair back. <laughs> like, is that just what she looks like? Or is it just this incredible coincidence? Like, you're that girl from the calendar. I think maybe the former, but the latter would be funnier. 
Yeah. Would it be like that thing in Ocean's 12 where Julia Roberts is mistaken for Julia Roberts and you're like, oh, God. It wouldn't be nearly that stupid. <laughs> Anyways, when he, when the guard uh, goes back into work the next day, uh, Magneto says like, oh, I noticed something about you. Turn my on and your blood. And he yanks the mercury out of uh, the guard, like, out of his chest, and he says... In a red mist. Yeah, in a red mist. He's like, never trust a woman, especially not one who shows interest in you. And he forms the mercury into these three balls that just fly around and shatter his prison. And they turn into this little disc that he stands on and sends him out. And he just floats out with his little orbs of power and they ricochet around. And yeah, it's, it's the second awesome scene in this movie. Yeah. This, we're jumping way ahead, but if you compare this to the time in a bottle sequence. Yeah. Could there be an X-Men movie that is exclusively Magneto breaking out of prison? <laughs> like, he's stuck in successively smaller prisons, and he has to gradually work his way out of them. <laughs> you know, like the raid, like he just has to get to the end of it. <laughs> Each time it's something else, some other sympathetic mutant shows up to help him. Yeah. Uh, but why are the prison breaks where the movies shine and not in, you, you know, fight scenes? I have no idea. What did that work to? I, by the way, I, I'm being a smart aleck. That applies to most of the movies. Uh, X2 handles action better than most of them. And since we're on the subject, uh, mm -hmm. one reason this movie succeeds, there's several reasons this movie succeeds where the first one doesn't. Uh, it has the set pieces down. There are basically no memorable set pieces in the first X-Men movie. The Statue of Liberty fight isn't anything. The train station fight isn't anything. Mm -hmm. This one has like that, you know, great, you know, middle brow action movie uh, pacing of like, okay, we open with a really great scene, like the Nightcrawler assassination, the raid on the uh, the mansion. Is really cool and well done. Yeah. The uh, Magneto escape is really cool and well done. And then it's a little drawn out, but even like the showdown at the dam, it, it's that thing of like when the set pieces work, it doesn't matter. The stuff in between is like, oh, some cop shot Wolverine, but didn't do anything. Like, no, that's connective tissue. That's filler. Nobody's going to walk out of the movie and go, like, man, uh, Oh, that scene where, like, Bobby and Pyro argue for a minute. No, they walk out going, the scene where he gets out of prison, the scene where he almost stabs mm -hmm. the president. Goodness gracious. Yeah. Uh, and essentially, we, the Wolverine and the kids get to Bobby's house where Bobby tells his family, you know, I need to tell you something. And he comes out as a mutant to them in what is really, like, I know what they were going for, but it's so heavy-handed. Like, his mom actually says, like, have you tried not being a mutant? Which... It's in the trailer, and it's like, okay, we get it. It's almost quaint now, and then at the time, it was kind of groundbreaking. Because uh, we, we've talked a little about that, how... Don't get me wrong, like, like, there's still tons of bigotry 
if you go like, oh, like people accept uh, the gay community. Yeah. yeah, on balance, like I wouldn't want to be the wrong person in the wrong hauler right now. Yeah, disproving that rule, but it does seem like gay rights and like gay acceptance and gay civil liberties and everything. It was just like pushing and pushing and pushing, and then overnight in like 2000 you know 2013 or something it was like the republican party went like oh it's screwed okay fine fine you can get married i hope you're happy now i'm gonna go kick a trans person yeah like and and so when you look back at the odds you're like that's cheesy and you go no wait a minute this was still the first first bush term yeah this was still like a like a presidential candidate who when he had lost everything they they were scrambling at the end of like 2007 to go well what do people hate do they still hate the gays we can go hard on the gays right yeah yeah so it's a little cheesy to watch it in 2020 but you're like uh yeah at the time like i personally know at least one or two people who found that scene kind of touching Ian McKellen found that scene touching. Yeah, and then unfortunately, uh, Brian Singer found some people that he could be touching, and pretty much any gay subtext in this movie, these movies gets tainted yeah. just a little bit. But yeah. we'll talk about that some other time. Uh, when Iceman's brother sees this, he narks on to the cops, and when the cops show up, That's they they uh, shoot. Wolverine in the head, who seems like he should take that a lot better. And then uh, Pyro burns a bunch of cops to death. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they they basically have to bolt because of that, so they get into the Blackbird and they fly off. So they do a black bolt, is what you're saying. Yeah. Interesting. And uh, they have to fly away, but Essentially, Air Force guys shoot them down, and they're they're about to hit the ground, but they suddenly stop. And then you see outside uh, Magneto. Oh, I, I, I get to do this one. You got to do the last one. Go ahead. Okay, it's Magneto with one hand holding up the Blackbird, and he turns to Mystique and goes, "When will they learn to fly?" Yeah, and essentially after that, they need to come up with a plan on how to. Uh, by the way, Xavier has been kidnapped. <laughs> oh, yeah. We I should... probably should have mentioned <laughs> that the literal title character <laughs> has been taken off the chessboard. Xavier has been kidnapped by Stryker. I should have cleared that up. And he's being mind-controlled by uh, Jason Stryker. Yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah. So they have Jason to... Jason Stryker sounds like the main character in an Animorphs novel. <laughs> Yeah, and they have to come up with a plan in a nice little campfire sequence. It's, just, it's literally just them inspired com- by Blazing Saddles. Yeah, coming up. <laughs> oh, what I wouldn't have done to see a scene like that. Oh, good news! I'm sure it was an epic movie. <laughs> Anyways, but yeah, sure, in the in the campfire scene, they come up with an idea like we need to do this and that and. Yeah, there's it's a little more specific than that, but you yeah. know, Nightcrawler chats with uh, Mystique. Uh, I don't think either of them realize that they're mother and son. Now, legit question: 
Was that on their minds when whoever wrote this scene wrote this scene? I think maybe. Okay, because when we circle around to First Class and the prequel movies, and this is when it gets to, to be a headache, because you're like, okay, what counts and what doesn't? Yeah. Is, is First Class an actual prequel, or is it like starting over, so to speak? It's one of like, wait, does Casino Royale take place before... Doctor No, like movie wise, mm-hmm. it becomes very. It's like don't worry about it. It's very clearly established in the uh, the new movies that Nightcrawler is meant to be Mystique and Azazel's son. Yeah, and that's always been it in the books too. Like Night Nightcrawler is Mystique's son. Mm-hmm. So I think that it had long been like an unspoken part of X Men canon, even in two thousand three. Uh, but they seem to play this off, not, maybe not even romantically, but there's a little bit of, uh, like, they're just talking, and, like, it's not easy being blue, and blah, blah, blah. And there's no clear acknowledgement of, like, is it coincidental that we have two blue folks? Mm. Like, are you two related? And if so, how? And instead, they just skate past it, because if there's one thing X-Men movies love, it's blue mutants. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, there was even uh, some confusion that uh, franchise the New Mutants typo. Chris Claremont pitched it as the Blue Mutants. So. Yeah. <laughs> I can write for Sesame Street. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, they make it to uh, they make it to Alka- Alkali Lake, the dam in Alkali, Alkali Lake, and uh, that Cremation Creek. Wolverine is let in. And uh, like in the handcuffs, and Stryker takes one look at him and goes, "This isn't him." He says, I, "I know my work when I see it." And he walks off, says, "Shooter," and we realize it's Mystique. She slips out of the handcuffs, uh, beats everyone up, slides through a door to the control panel while flipping everyone off. That's, That's- enough. A nice touch. That's a nice touch, uh, and lets in all the mutants, and we get a very. Very long, very intricate scenes of one mutant fighting another. We have, you know, a mind-controlled Cyclops fighting Jean. We have Wolverine fighting Lady Deathstrike. By the way, Lady Deathstrike is in this movie wearing a nice, a smart pantsuit. Yeah. Uh, And uh, eventually, you know, people are beaten. Uh... Magneto is able to set forth his kind of last-minute plan of trying to destroy all of humanity. Yeah, which I, I kind of say I love this as a touch because it is... It's... Talk about improvising. Uh, people, I'm sure, if they're listening to this, have seen the movie, but yeah. Um, Stryker wants to wipe out all of mutant kind because mm-hmm. he hates them and he blames Xavier for like the damage to his son and his wife. Yeah, uh, his wife drilled a hole in her head to escape uh, Jason's tampering. Mm-hmm. So he has a vendetta. He's the anti-Magneto. Yeah, he wants to wipe out all, kill all humans. Hey there, hey there, Lady Deathstrike, want to help me kill all humans? <laughs> um, no, kill all mutants. I mean. Uh, so he has this plan and essentially brainwashes Xavier into going into a new Cerebro that they built. Yeah. Uh, and 
just linking the minds of every single mutant on the planet and Jason as a little girl hallucination goes like kill them all kill every mutant kill them all and there's a pretty dope scene where all everybody the Brotherhood and the X-Men are in a hallway and they all collapse in conniption fits mm -hmm. and outside Rogue and Bobby are dying and everyone's I don't know why he doesn't just give everyone an aneurysm, but they're like slowly, agonizingly dying. And Magneto's the only one saved because of his stupid helmet. Yeah. So he opens the this huge metal door. He goes inside and he shuts it all down. He rearranges Cerebro so that uh, Xavier can't kill all, kill all mutants. But then uh, Mystique comes in as Stryker, whispers something to Jason, and they give him the new plan, which is kill all humans yeah and this this is the sort of thing that made me like this movie when it came out it's a longish movie it's fairly involved it's the kind of plot that actually works if you'll indulge me for just mm -hmm. a second i know you never do on this show um but we've talked before, every movie that comes out is like, I'm going to stage a nuclear attack so that Russia goes to war with America. And that's mm -hmm. the plot of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and a later, worse X-Men movie, and every other movie that comes out has that plan. This one is actually pretty intricate, intricate where uh, Stryker's motivation is believable. Uh, what's his face? Brian Cox? Yeah. Is, uh, he's like hamming it up, but he's like a wonderful actor, so he's a convincing bad guy for the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, the gradual, like, there's actual stakes, like they kidnapped the professor, he's gonna kill everybody. And it's a plot where you actually have to, like, pay attention to understand when it finally clicks in place. That he doesn't just, he's not just trying to get the president to sign a bill where they can go build sentinels or something. He yeah. actually has a master plan, which is actually pretty good and might work if nobody gets in his way. Uh, it's the better breed of corny action movie plots. Mm -hmm. And so he almost succeeds, and then at the end, Magneto, who's done his face turn and is helping the X-Men, just like he does in the graphic novel, God Loves, Man Kills, he's the good guy. And then about 20 minutes from the ending, he sees his opportunity and goes, huh. I could kill all humans. And he just smirks and he and Mystique walk out and suddenly they have, they go from having like the ticking time bomb, like doomsday moment in the movie. And instead of resolving it, they just change it to a different one. Yeah. I haven't seen that done a lot. Yeah. To be honest. So that's, that's actually well executed. And then he just sort of waltzes away and it doesn't work, but pretty goddamn cool actually yeah but one more grace note for Magneto in this movie essentially uh, we are able to stop the killing of all humans and mutants uh, not all of them just yeah. psychically Magneto and Mystique get away Stryker is chained to a uh, chunk of rock chunk of rock yeah. uh, and Artie Gives him kind of he razzes him, yeah. His meat and tongue, decent scene. Wolverine wanders by, holding Artie in his arms like a damsel, and Striker is half crucified. He's like, someday somebody's gonna come by and finish the work I started, Wolverine. He goes, I'll take my chances with him, and he walks off with the kid. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, but the cyclopses caused a huge chunk of the dam to come down and they all need to get yeah they all need to get out and they they do get out but uh they need to fly away in the blackbird but uh they need to stop the dam completely from uh this gets a little muddled but they need to stop the dam from completely falling so that they have time to escape so that they have time to escape and Jean needs to get out of the blackbird while it is flying away to use her telekinetic powers to stop it and uh she does she uh she overpowers Xavier um she turns off Nightcrawler's teleporting abilities so he can't go get her. She closes the door of the Blackbird so they can't save her. She's basically sacrificing herself completely. And she saves them all while getting drowned. And, uh... Essentially, yeah. But before she dies, she speaks through Xavier to Cyclops, like, don't worry, uh, Scott, I love you. I will always love you. But it's... It's so... It's kind of goofy because it's Patrick Stewart saying this to James Marston, so... Wait, was was that a message from Gene? Gene who? Oh, my student! No, no. And they get away, and, uh... The president, we cut to the president who's about to uh, deliver a speech about, you know, going after mutants, how we need to do the Mutant Registration Act. And uh, Professor X freezes everyone while Nightcrawler bamps everyone into the room while Professor X freezes everyone. And the... uh, it's funny, but the the X Men essentially threaten the president to you know lay lay off of mutants. Yeah, it's like that uh, Garth Ennis issue where the Punisher threatens Bush. Yeah, yeah. He, he said, Xavier says like you know there a war has started and there have already been casualties, and he goes into how like you know this will be bad for both of us, so just please uh, knock it off. Mm-hmm. And he, starts, he uses his Cosgrove powers. Yeah. Hey, knock it off. He throws the papers down about uh, the show, the Striker's plan, and how Striker was against the president all the time. And he sees them, and then they bamf out of there, and the cameras turn on, and people are unfrozen, and uh, uh, yeah. The president says, like, you know, we need to lay off the mutants. Yeah. Ha, had too many mutants last night. Could barely get to sleep. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, it eventually, the, the movie ends. The movie just ends with Cyclops being sad and uh, Wolverine being sad but not showing it. And then we pan over the Alkali Lake. Uh, we get to see Brian Cox's bloated corpse bobbing up from the water. I'm just kidding, of course. Although, him having a front row seat to the dam breaking is pretty gratifying. <laughs> yeah. No, we pan over the water and then we see a symbol of what, Jeremy? What medieval fictional mythological creature has their emblem represented here? A manticore. Shit. Oh, I always do that. No, it's a phoenix. It's a phoenix. Yeah. Uh, which is setting up the third film. Which, uh, 
Man, I mean, I think a lot of people watch out of X2 going like, wow, that was the goods. That was stratospherically better than the first one. I see no reason why a third movie would not continue moving strength from strength. So the same way the first movie, the second movie is uh, twice as good as the first one, I have to believe the third X-Men movie will be twice as good as x And they were right, and it was. Yeah. But we will get into that next time. Yeah. Well, yeah, we will uh, save our discussion of Last Stand, which, uh, spoilers, we agree with everybody else. Terrible goddamn movie. Yeah. And it's uh, Brian Singer's fault because he could have... Yeah. Leaving aside uh, his, his role as a uh, human being, well, yeah. like uh, being a player within uh, society, let's just focus on Brian Singer as a uh, director for a moment. He could have stuck around and made the other X-Men, the third X-Men movie, mm-hmm. and finished the story. And it would have been a pretty tight little trilogy, I imagine. But instead, he had to go direct his Superman movie. His god-awful, boring-ass Superman movie that is seven hours long. And features Kevin Spacey, who enjoys the same pastimes as yeah. Brian Which, Singer. By the way, what I have a, some soft spot for a, a Ted, of all things, the Seth MacFarlane comedy. Uh, one of the better jokes on that is uh, Patrick Stewart doing narration, because he and Seth MacFarlane are buddy-buddy. Mm-hmm. And at the end, when he says, uh, he talks about the guy from uh, Flash Gordon. Yeah, Sam Jones. Yeah, he says, uh, Sam Jones wanted to reignite his uh, film career, and so he moved back to Hollywood. There, he got an apartment with Brandon Ruth. We all remember him from that god-awful Superman Returns movie. I mean, way to build our hopes up and then dash them all to shit. And at the time, it's just funny because it's, like, accurate and amusing and it's Patrick Stewart. It's only later where you go, oh, wait, that's Patrick Stewart talking about Brian Singer (laughs) for doing that that ungodly, tedious, you know, $300 million fan fiction of movies that weren't that good to begin with in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, terrific. So he decided he had to go do that instead, and so they wouldn't wait for him, so they made a terrible third X-Men movie, but... We'll talk about that next time. What do we have to say about X2? What works and what doesn't? Uh, a lot of... It's a very... It's much better than the first one. Yeah. There's much more thought put into it. There's much more action. It's in... I don't know if cerebral would be the word, but definitely smarter. Yeah, which... Clearing a small bar, but I think that's accurate. It's got one or two more brain cells than your average summer movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I don't want to oversell it. Uh, first of all, we keep shitting on Brian Singer, and and uh, I stand by that. Like I, I believe most of the allegations, and mm-hmm. you know, I'm ready to dismiss him. But there's no reason to do these podcasts if we're just gonna go like fuck him. Yeah, you know, like we're very much like okay, art artist from the art. Could he still produce? something good the truth is yeah he did make a uh one good x-men movie yeah and the result is uh there are the two go-to x-men storylines there's three actually but it's god loves man kills 
Days of Future Past and mm -hmm. Dark Phoenix. Mm -hmm. The problem with Dark Phoenix is that it's like super long and it has aliens and uh, yeah. it's like it has the Hellfire Club and I actually love it because of that but it's it's super nutty. Whereas those other two like really boil the concept down so like God Loves Man Kills is the platonic idea of an X-Men story yeah. in about 48 pages. Days of Future Past is that plus more time travel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the result is that you can adapt either of those into a movie really easily. You can't do that with Dark Phoenix. Yeah. Uh, so the result is the two better Bryan Singer X-Men movies are X2 and Days of Future Past. I honestly think that's just because he has like some strong material to start from, yeah. I would say. Uh, and I don't want to oversell X2. Not too long ago, I hadn't seen the film in at least a decade, I would say. Like, last time mm -hmm. I watched it was probably via a Rift Rex. Yeah. Uh, and a friend of mine, uh, my co-host on my other podcast, uh, she caught X2 and she said she sat there the whole time watching it going, why did I think this was so great back in the day? And I kind of wonder about that. If I sat, you know, I, I refreshed myself watching some scenes here and there, like, you know, doing my homework. Uh, but... I didn't like sit down and watch this start to finish. If I did, would I realize that it's just a couple good scenes and a couple good performances strung together? Yeah. So, the same way the first movie is like the ultimate two and a half star movie, X2 is the ultimate three star movie. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to oversell this. It's not the Road Warrior or anything. Yeah. One thing that I think elevates it, there's an actual plot. With some strings. Mm -hmm. The set pieces, as I said before, are genuinely well done. And now that they're done with the exhausting business of like, here's 16 characters you have to memorize and get acquainted yeah. with, they can throw in those human moments. So, like, Mystique doing a bunch of kung fu and like sneaking around is fine. Her doing that and then flipping guys off yeah. is the little bit that makes the difference. Same thing, she, she's an utter, like, plot coupon. She doesn't have a personality, but Lady Deathstrike is at least cool in this movie. Yeah. And yeah, the CEO you know, of Strikers, like, chickening out and leaving her behind. So, we always thought you were one of a kind, Wolverine. Turns out, we were wrong. And then mm -hmm. he leaves them to fight, and she pulls out, like, her, like, 12-inch fingernails, and Hugh Jackman goes, Oh, shit. Yeah. And again, it's not just like, oh, he said a swear. Like, it's not cool because of that, but just those tiny, tiny little touches mm -hmm. that make the difference. And uh, same thing, uh, the scene where they're hanging out at the, the X-Mansion, Bobby's catching up with Wolverine, um, awkwardly explaining why he can't seal the deal with Rogue for obvious reasons. Yeah. And then uh, Wolverine, he gets uh, gets out a six-pack, but uh, it's it's uh, still warm. And then, uh, much like uh, Goody Proctor's forgiveness, uh, Bobby can freeze beer. <laughs> so mm -hmm. he does that, and it, it's it's the stuff like that where, like, what if I use my ice powers in, like, a fun, creative way? Yeah. What if Wolverine gets shot in the head and gets mad about it? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe the one other thing that is really worth contextualizing these with, remember the years that these came out. Yeah. Uh, what can you tell me about 2000 and 2003 movie-wise? 
I vaguely remember a Charlie's Angels movie. I think both the years that these came out, there was a Charlie's Angels movie that year. Yeah. I'm going to teach you and your friends about pee and... That's where Justin Thoreau from the trailer. Yeah. I only remember those because at the time I had a huge crush on Drew Barrymore. Okay. Uh, well, not much to be remembered, right? Yeah. I'm sure. Um, these days, we... we the monoculture is done. Like, even with Endgame, there's no one movie that dominates a summer the way that, like, Terminator 2 or even Star Wars could. Yeah. Like, people dunked on The Phantom Menace, but that was the movie that year, right? Yeah. Um, the years that these two movies came out, it's hard to understate just how little was going on, like, culturally, cinematically mm-hmm. during... I mean, I, I hate George W. Bush, but I'm not blaming this on him. I'm just saying it's a coincidence. The Bush years are such a fallow field when it comes to, like, film, television, art. Like, did a good movie come out between Topsy Turvy and There Will Be Blood? I don't think so. Yeah, and it's, I mean, hyperbole aside, yeah, there's a couple, but last year I was... I was like, what's my top 10 list? Oh, shit, what's my top 20 list? Mm-hmm. Whereas the other day, somebody on Twitter was like, what's the best movie of 2004? And I was, I thought, like, the second half of Kill Bill? Does that count? <laughs> uh, so, as a result of this, uh, 1999 is occasionally used as a contender for, like, the best year for movies ever. Mm-hmm. It's up there with like 1939, you know. Yeah. It, you know, very well established, has all these heads. I think because of that, because like they were worried the world would end, they got all their good ideas out <laughs> yeah. in 1999. The year 2000 was the year of like the clumps mm-hmm. and the road to El Dorado yeah. and Titan AE and the Patriots. <laughs> You want me to keep going with this? Okay, I no, will. No, no, God, no. Ready to rumble. Please stop. The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. Meet the Parents. How the Grinch Stole Christmas. There's a case to be made that Little Nicky was the best <laughs> movie that came out in the year 2000. And, like, I look back on that and I'm like, shit... What what else came out in the year 2000? Like, X-Men's... Any other summer, we get, like, overshadowed because it's not that great. Mm-hmm. In the year 2000, you're like... What else came out that year that was even watchable? Like, Unbreakable? And the American release of... Drunken Master, which had already been out like six. <laughs> that's how that's how much we have to like grasp for straws. Where you're like, no, there there were great movies competing against X Men, like uh, uh, Shanghai Noon, <laughs> which would not not even a bad movie. But you see my point, like mm-hmm. that would be no joke. One of the ten best films that came out that year. Yeah. That's how just how bad it was. And so for X-Men to come out and, like, not suck totally, just to be kind of, like, boring and there, of course it's going to stand out. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
2003 was a little better, but I even remember like an Onion joke at the time where they said, uh, Americans desperately scramble for a movie that they can all enjoy. Yeah. Because the summer of 2003 was the summer of The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Terminator 3, the Ang Lee Hulk movie, uh, what the hell, like Legally Blonde 2. And there, there were a couple of decent movies, like Kill Bill, Awesome as Hell, mm-hmm. came out uh, towards the tail end of 2003. There were a few decent offerings, but yeah, like the if you went to the movies in like 2002 and 2003, you'd see like Underworld and Die Another Day. Yeah. And so when you look, you look at X2, and when you compare it to uh, good movies, if you compare it to... You know, Enter the Dragon. That's <laughs> not even my favorite Bruce Lee. Yeah, uh, but yeah, if you compare it to to like a Mad Max film or like a Christopher Nolan Batman film, it's not very good. But all it had to do was be better than everything else around it, like the thinnest kid in Fat Camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, speaking of, I mentioned Nolan. Yeah. Do you find it weird that Nolan and Brian Singer were given the keys to the kingdom? What do you mean? Well, it's a weirdly similar... The keys to the comic kingdom? Keys to the comic kingdom. (laughs) Because the goal... It used to be if you were going to make one of these movies, you would hire, like, uh, James Cameron, who's just one of the best, like, pure action directors. Yeah. Or, like, Sam Raimi, who does, like, action and humor well. Yeah, like everything from like Dark Man to Army of Darkness, like Sam Raimi knows how to make like a, an eight ball of a movie. Mm-hmm. And to this day, there it's like, oh, Battle Angel Alita made by freaking Robert Rodriguez. Why not? Mm-hmm. Um, it was weird that this was the era where, and then these days with Marvel, they just get like TV directors, and it's all like second unit and CGI. I'm not trying to sneer, like. A, you know, more power to you if you go make those movies. Yeah. But the point is that they got, like, Peyton Reed and, like, Tristram Shapiro's going to direct one of these. Yeah. Whereas back in the day, they, you'd go, like, is Terry Gilliam too busy to make a Harry Potter film? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this more assembly line approach. Back then, the idea was that you would take a semi-intellectual filmmaker and have them take a run at it. Yeah. So even up to, like, Kenneth Branagh doing Thor was an attempt to do that, maybe. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Ang Lee doing the Hulk, which did not turn out well, but that was was the idea. Like, you have to have, like, an established director. Yeah, it can't just be, like, you know, if you have, like, a commercial director do a superhero movie, you get mystery men. Yeah. And so Christopher Nolan, who I am going to just say is probably a much better human being than Brian Singer... (laughs) But weirdly similar trajectories, because Christopher Nolan makes one pretty solid first film, Memento, a not very good follow-up, Insomnia. Like, like it's okay. Yeah, I don't even remember that one exactly. Then he, the because based on that, like, hey, you're the guy who did Memento. Here's a million to a hundred million dollars. Yeah, they let him do uh, Batman Begins, which is. Fine, but then it's proof of concept for a really good like second installment, mm-hmm. and that's the exact same thing as like Brian Singer like directs one 
pretty good first movie. Uh, the Usual Suspects. Mm-hmm. Uh, a follow-up. It's not good or bad. Just nobody cares about it or remembers it. Apt Pupil. I liked Apt Pupil. Okay. More power to you. The only time I've heard anybody mention Apt Pupil was as a joke on an episode of Keen Peel. Okay, but fine. He does Apt Pupil, which doesn't set the world on fire. Then they let him do this trilogy. Mm-hmm. And he makes an okay-ish first movie, which gives them enough funding to do an actually good second movie. Yeah. yeah, and the difference is, and I'll bring this full circle, I don't care what anyone else says about Dark Knight Rises. It's a fun movie that I would watch. Yeah, I, did, I like Dark Knight Rises. Yeah. It's good. So Dark Knight, yeah, the Dark Knight trilogy is an actual trilogy. Mm-hmm. Mostly coherent. Whereas uh, the X-Men, the Bryan Singer X-Men trilogy is X-Men 1, hmm, X-Men 2, X-Men 3 <laughs> No whammy, no whammy, no whammy Oh no, Chunky's coming out to eat all your points Oh my god Don't come over here Don't talk The mouth on the thing doesn't move It looks fake X-Men, you had all summer to figure out what you do <laughs> So, last thoughts before I shoot you? Last thoughts. Uh, I'm going to say good movie. Which one? X2. X2? Yeah. Yeah. A thoroughly good movie. An utter, you know, three stars all the way home movie. Mm -hmm. And rather than pointing towards future successes, this would, in fact, basically be the high water mark for about 15 years <laughs> yeah yeah we're uh, if you thought that this was lukewarm praise oh boy do we go south from here <laughs> but yeah that is that is for another time uh that's the days of future past yeah we'll save it for those days we'll save it for those days uh that is going to be the end of this chapter of stinking muties an elegy. <laughs> you, you really melt that. But yeah, an elegy. Uh, we're wrapping up this episode, uh, but I'd like to say a few things. Uh, if you can, please give to charities for those disenfranchised in these troubled times. For example, the Okra Project, which helps black trans people with food, shelter, and other means of life. Also, support the Trevor Project, a mental health hotline for LGBTQ youths in trouble. Uh, Nathaniel, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter, uh, at Pretendium. It's a uh, D&D and fantasy-themed Twitter page, so of course I talk exclusively about uh, Batman and comedies from the 90s that I like. <laughs> and you, uh, more importantly, you can listen to me and my uh, more talented co-host Randy uh, every Monday at the Pretendium Compendium. That's pretend, like what we do when we watch these movies. Eon, like it was a metal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Pretendium Compendium. Uh, we are available at pretendiumpod.com and most other uh, uh, pod catchers that you'd care to name. Uh, you can hunt around for us. And uh, we have a lot of fun. Randy and I, we use Dungeons and Dragons as a starting point. We do talk a lot about fantasy, we talk a lot about gaming, 
Uh, but we use that more as like a, a gateway to get to talking about other stuff like movies, uh, how different people consume the media that they do, mm -hmm. uh, and ideas that didn't ever get off the ground but uh, turned out pretty well. Like in the early 90s when D&D published a million spinoffs that uh, lost them money but sure came up with a lot of cool stuff to talk about. Hmm. So yeah, kind of the flotsam and jetsam of a hobby that has since moved on. Alright. Uh, as for me, you can find me on my YouTube channel, Ringo Phonebonius Jones. You can also find me under that name uh, on Tumblr and TikTok. On Twitter, you can find the show at at Penny Tolerable. Uh, I am... I can be found at at my planet is J. Uh, and my Instagram is at my planet is Jeremy. Uh, we are available on SoundCloud and also Anchor and Spotify, among other, among several others. We are branching out at this moment. Uh, please like, comment, and subscribe uh, about this podcast. And uh, yeah, that's uh, before we go. The old. X-Men cartoon from the 90s. Mm -hmm. They had to have one of those generic presidents that keeps the media from getting dated. Yeah. On the cartoon, wasn't it a woman? It was. And then in the X-Men movies, which came out almost a decade later, it's just some boring white guy? Yeah. Huh. So that's what we call progress, huh? I guess so. Yeah. Just picture a bunch of clapping hands emojis. More racist female anti-mutant presidents, please. Uh, that's progress. Anyways, that's all I have to say. Mm-hmm. If you can, please give to charities for those disenfranchised in these still troubled times. An example might be the Obra Project, which helps black trans people with food, shelter, and other needs of life. Also, support the Trevor Project, a mental health hotline for LGBTQ youths in trouble. Uh, as for Nathaniel, you can find him at the Pretendium Compendium, his own podcast, where he talks about Dungeons and Dragons and other fantasy fare. Uh, if you would like to see more of me, you can find me on my YouTube channel, Jeans, which is J-E-E-M-S. You can find me on my Tumblr, which is also Jeans, my TikTok, Jeans84, my Twitter, the show's Twitter is at Penny Tolerable, and I'm at My Planet is Jay. And you can find me on my Instagram at, at 
My Planet is Jeremy. Uh, we are available on Anchor, SoundCloud, Spotify, and several other podcast platforms. Now, on with the show. <laughs> 